Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2016, volume 54, number five. My name is David Fazekli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. So our editorial this month considers the needs of young people with learning disabilities. So what are the sort of issues we discuss? So we're looking at the enhanced service. We had one uh, for adults from 2008 uh, in general practice to do annual health checks. And then in 2014, the government introduced one for uh, younger people with learning disabilities. And uh, there are some quite clear needs in this group of uh, patients uh, around their ability to access healthcare, around their ability to communicate with healthcare professionals. And often they have uh, considerable comorbidity which needs to be addressed. So we discuss the sort of part about the argument behind whether these are a good thing and a bad thing, but also we discuss the interplay between secondary care who often are looking after these patients during much of their childhood and the transition to adulthood and the role of general practice in that. So the enhanced service was introduced what with the aim of picking up the care of the, improving the care of young people with learning disabilities? Yeah, that's right. So the, the argument goes that these people don't necessarily access health care particularly well and that uh, very often uh, health needs are missed and an opportunity to better meet with the GP and discuss those and make a plan on where the priorities lie is thought to be a good thing. One of the things that I, we had discussed this in an editorial um, uh, some months ago, whether you can demonstrate health outcomes from this sort of interaction is difficult. But, but I think what we're trying to discuss in this editorial is more around the engagement of people with learning difficulties with the health service in general and the benefits that you have from doing that. So the service is not compulsory, so it's up to practices whether they provide it? That's right, it's an enhanced service and uh, some practices you know, will, you know, won't necessarily sign up for this. And because it's relatively recent, I assume we haven't got much data to show how widespread the uptake is. No, as you know, well, as as you know, we and uh, you and I spent some time seeing if we could find some data around this. We have data for the adults um, learning uh, disabilities, and we can show that about fifty percent of people who've been recognised as having learning disabilities have had a health check by their GP in 2014. And that's as far as the data goes. And of course, this widening of the learning uh, disabilities uh, annual health check started then. So we don't have any data for children uh, regarding this. But we do cite a little bit of evidence around uh, a systematic review that has looked at what happens when you do put these sort of health checks in place. And it seems to be positive in that you do pick up more illness? Yes. I mean, it, it's a difficult one because the systematic review wasn't great at de uh, showing us the figures, but it does seem that you pick up more illness and uh, things like thyroid disease, um, cardiovascular difficulties, even things as simple as earwax. I mean, it seems a simple, trivial thing, but many patients with learning disabilities now wear headphones or um, earbuds and uh, you know, the, the problem with wax can be a considerable one in someone who can't communicate to you that they are having a hearing problem. And perhaps the key issue, which we discuss in, in a bit more depth, is, is the issue of transferring their care between the children's services, which they're used to, and preparing them for adult services as they reach 18 and, and above. 
and that this may be an opportunity to, to start that process? For me, this, I think, is the vital bit because I think one of the difficulties we have sometimes is that children go through their early years in specialist centres with secondary care and then there's this transition where secondary care quietly lets go of them and sometimes the adult services that they're going to uh, engage with actually are their GP and no one else and I think sometimes there's been perhaps a, a tension between secondary care and GPs around this and I think many GPs uh, feel that perhaps they don't have the same level of expertise as a consultant might have and therefore they feel vulnerable about taking over these patients. So a real opportunity to do something but as with much of GMS contract this is a year-to-year -year renewal. We know it's carrying on for this year but the future. Yeah, th this is this is a major issue, which perhaps is you know we don't we, we do discuss it a little bit in the editorial. But of course, if you've got a a contract that's only being renewed on an annual basis, how do you put in place permanent uh, capacity to do it? Uh, well, the answer is you don't because you don't know when it's going to finish. And I think this is a major issue for primary care in general. Okay, thank you very much. Now, interestingly, both main articles this month feature drugs that act on alpha adrenergic receptors. They're both agonists, so we'll need to be careful to get our alpha-1 and alpha-2 receptors uh, yes. the right way around. So let's look at the first one, a drug used for the management of orthostatic hypotension. Orthostatic hypotension, officially defined as a sustained reduction of systolic blood pressure of at least 20 millimetres of mercury or diastolic blood pressure of 10 millimetres of mercury within three minutes of standing. So what causes orthostatic hypertension. Yeah, so I think I think this is a really useful article, if not just because we do go through the issues. And um, this is a big issue. Uh, studies suggest that anything between 1 in 20 to 1 in 3 elderly patients over 65 will suffer from orthostatic hypotension. And the causes are legion, classic medication, 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 medication is often the issue. Also things like autonomic failure, um, autonomic problems around diabetes obviously becoming more common. Parkinson's uh, disease is a major issue. But some people just low intravascular volume. A lot of elderly patients can limit their fluid intake because of fears around their uh, bladder problems. And this can lead to problems with hypotension on standing. So common and a difficult issue. What can we do about it? What, what are the non-drug things that... Yeah, so once, once you've checked the medication and checked it again and, and gone through it all, the things that uh, traditionally have been offered are things like compression hosiery, avoiding large uh, meals, trying to maintain one's fluid intake. Uh, there are some other ones that are constantly talked about in, in the papers. Uh, rapid cool water ingestion is one that you see pops up, but we, we couldn't find really any evidence to support that and in fact many of the options that have been traditionally advised to try on patients with orthostatic hypotension the evidence is actually very weak. So once you've tried obviously the non-drug things limited evidence aside moving on to drugs what have we got available? So I mean the the drug that we've tended to really uh, lean on has been uh, mineral corticoid uh, fludrocortisone, which causes fluid retention and can have significant impact on people's uh, renal function if you're not careful. In addition, we have had midodrine now for many years as an unlicensed drug, and uh, what we talk about in our article 
is the fact that this now has had a license since March 2015 and is now available for us to use. So let's crack what it does. It, it acts on alpha-1 receptors on yes. the vascular smooth muscle and produces vasoconstriction and increases your peripheral resistance and your system, systemic arterial blood pressure. So counters that hypertensive effect. Indeed. And how good is it? Well, we have uh, two systematic reviews that the uh, they were used in the licensing. These aren't big systematic reviews. The first one had about 300 patients in it and the second one about 500. And uh, what the two systematic reviews looked at different things. So the first one looked at the nuts and bolts of blood pressure changes. So there were three outcomes they looked at. Changes in the systolic blood pressure from being supine to standing, placebo versus um, the new drug, then change in mean arterial pressure in patients taking midodrine versus uh, placebo. And the last one is a change in standing systolic blood pressure before and after the intervention. And interestingly enough, it was only that latter figure, the standing systolic blood pressure before and after the intervention that was actually demonstrated to have any uh, statistical significance uh, in that systematic review. The second one looked at symptomatic improvement and although the evidence was considered quite poor, it did show a benefit in symptoms and in fact they give us a number needed to treat figure of about three uh, for symptomatic improvement. And we also go back and look at the original uh, clinical studies that, that are quoted in the systematic reviews and again it it's the same message, isn't it? You get a change in blood pressure of about 15 to 20 millimetres of mercury. Yes, yeah. And this improvement in, in symptom scores. But again, very small numbers of patients. What about harms? Yes, well, of course, these are short-term studies, so we have nothing on the long-term efficacy of these. These are alpha-1 adrenoceptor agonists, so they stimulate adrenoceptors, so you get vasoconstriction peripherally, that's what you want, but you also stimulate bladder muscle. Interesting enough, you also stimulate the muscles in your skin, so you get piloerection or goosebumps, itchy scalp, and difficulty urinating because of that issue on the bladder muscle. Those are the very common adverse effects. Probably the most significant adverse effect is that you can get supine hypertension. So you can actually develop hypertension lying down, which is a major issue, particularly as I think you know, a number of these elderly patients will have cerebrovascular disease or they'll have cardiovascular disease and giving them hypertension is not a good idea. So welcome the fact that we now have a licensed drug because it's been used in this country for long, for many years in an unlicensed, unregulated form. So that's, that's good news. In, in fact, it's very good news because, in fact, um, if you look at the number of prescriptions that were used in the UK on the old unlicensed uh, preparation and see how much you'd save, you know, you might see a saving of up to £200,000 a year. Because this new one is, because for some reason, cheaper. Is, absolutely. And who should be prescribing it? Is this one for GPs or is it one only under specialist control? I, I think we, because of the, the limited evidence and uh, because of some of the issues around assessment of those who would be best to use, at the moment we're saying this is really one for specialist consultants in elderly care probably mostly would be looking at these, I think. Okay, thank you very much. And our second article is on guanfacine 
which has been licensed for the management of ADHD in children and adolescents. So let's deal with the receptor type. This one, axon. So this one, axon alpha-2 adrenergic um, receptors. So this is a, those are presynaptic. So you, they actually inhibit negative feedback. So they, although they are agonists, they are agonists in a protagonist way. So these are present in both central nervous system and vascular smooth muscle. That's right. So in fact, in the States, I think this is actually licensed as an antihypertensive treatment. So it's doing various things, but we're concentrating on its impact on ADHD and its key selling point. Why, what's its advantage? So this is a non-stimulant drug, which um, can be a benefit uh, in some patients who cannot tolerate the stimulant drugs that we use for ADHD. That's obviously probably one of its main selling points. As I say, it's been licensed in the States since 2009. And uh, we have, obviously, it's, it's recent license. We've got evidence to show that it does have uh, benefit. But that, that evidence is quite difficult to unpick. So it does something, what, what were the outcome measures? Symptom scores, functioning? This is it. So, they, so this is always difficult, isn't it? What we've got is a whole lot of, I think, four or five symptom and function scores. And obviously, if you've got a condition like ADHD, which is a very... Uh, broad-ranging condition. There are almost two aspects of it. You want to better demonstrate that someone's attention deficit is improved, but also you want to demonstrate that they are functioning better because the trouble about attention deficit or someone who is very difficult to contain, if you like, is that if you just sedate them, then you can demonstrate an improvement in their symptom scores. <laughs> but of course, their functioning is absolutely hopeless. So you want to really see good symptom control and good function. And, and what the European Medicines Agency were looking for was a clinical improvement, and they sort of wanted to demonstrate functional and symptomatic improvement. But they struggled to show improvement of functioning. Function, and that was the difficulty. This drug does cause sedation, and one of the problems they had looking at their... They had five studies they looked at, was that uh, none of them seemed to demonstrate a particularly good... I think only one of them showed um, any functional improvement. And the clinical significance was, was there, but in the situation where the drug causes sedation, you're just concerned that actually, you know, does this drug work simply by sedating these people? In the end, they concluded that it was more than just sedation. It does do, some, does do something else. Um, but improved symptom scores... What about harms? So we've got sort of adverse effects on blood pressure because, as I say, it does work on uh, peripheral alpha-2 uh, receptors as well. You can get um, a bradycardia, reduced pulse. QT interval is an issue that can cause prolongation. And uh, I think when you look at the studies, I think six, about 60% of participants withdrew from uh, some of these studies. And in those situations, about 13% due to adverse effects. So this is not a, a simple, straightforward drug. And I believe that the, the monitoring requirements, both before you start it and then during treatment, are quite onerous. They are. There's an expectation that we're going to monitor blood pressure, height, weight. Um, it requires quite intensive uh, follow-up. So kind of cautious introduction. It, it's, it is available. It's, it's licensed. It's been, obviously, as you say, in the States for some, some time. Uh, and back to our question of where would this best be prescribed one for specialists, one for generalists. This, this, is, this is definitely one for specialists. It's all the drug treatments for ADHD must be part of a comprehensive treatment program which should involve other 
aspects to the child. Um, so it's really important that this is only undertaken in a specialist ADHD clinic by specialist paediatricians. It's also very expensive. It's about four times more expensive than other medications available at the moment. So this is one that sits firmly currently in our specialist clinics. Okay, thank you very much. To read this or any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future articles, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you. <laughs>